Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs. I'm a founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And I am Scott Sigler, New York Times bestselling novelist and... <laughs> and this is episode six of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. Today is Friday the 13th. So we're talking about the granddaddy of all slasher flicks, the original Friday the 13th. The small budget flick that created a huge franchise. Huge. huge. But, huge. First, but first, okay. let's talk about what's coming up on future episodes yes. of Story, Story Smack in case people want to follow along. Okay. On Friday, January 20th, which is next Friday, we're covering some of the box office lessons learned in 2016. On Friday, January 27th, we're covering the Resident Evil franchise to celebrate the January 27th release of Part 6, Resident Evil, The Final Chapter. Somehow, I'm not so sure it's the final chapter. I doubt it. It's like the Cher farewell tour. It wasn't the It's like the Rolling Stones. (laughs) This will be our last tour. tour, This is not the final chapter. And then on February 3rd, we'll be looking at the success and or failure of the top 10 biggest budget movies of 2016. And, and then... On Friday, February 10th, we're reviewing John Wick to celebrate the opening of John Wick 2, which comes out that very same freaking day. And I'm going to see that very same freaking day. For sure. Uh, Okay, Sigler, let us do this. This is not going to be, this will probably be our shortest story smack today because let's talk Friday the 13th, made in 1980. That's many years ago. Yeah. It's 37 years ago. As if anybody doesn't know about the movie that spawned the Jason franchise, please give them your radio announcer, movie, trailer guy synopsis. One summer at Camp Crystal Lake, a group of young counselors begin to get ready to lead campers. Unfortunately for the former, someone isn't happy about what's going on in the camp and enjoys playing Kill the Counselor. As bodies fall to the ground in the camp, no one is safe. Okay, spoiler alert. (laughs) This is your spoiler alert for Friday the 13th. From this point forward, we are probably going to talk about what very little we remember about any movie in this franchise. Yes. And we watched this recently. We watched this this week. We're going to talk about all of the whole franchise, all of it. Yes. Okay. So we're going to do that, and we're especially going to spoil the one that we just watched this week because we remember that because we're old people and we might have forgotten the one that came 20 years ago. I see. I see. So. First things first, the most important thing to know after you, the thing we've already said, which is this spawned a great big franchise. Huge. 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 Yep. Is that Kevin Bacon's in it? It's, I believe it's uh, Kevin Bacon ha- was not the biggest star of this movie at the time. Yeah, but yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. And he's wearing like crazy 80s clothes yeah. and a weirdo half you do get to see, swimsuit. You get to see his package. It's I mean, you don't really. thinly veiled. Yeah, it's he's wearing veiled. a swimsuit. You stopped and rewound so we could see his <laughs> package, like, which I, you I'm know, like, I, I endorse. It was a quick shot. I'm like, was that Kevin Bacon's package? And Kevin Bacon has got to be, what, 19 in this? 20 yeah, ballpark? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, it's, 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 of course, he still looks... 22 so i mean he's just, you mean today yeah he yeah likes, he he's does. definitely made a deal with the devil although that guy. he definitely it's strange strange he, i think you i agree with you made a deal with the devil because today he's uh more rough hewn and distinguished like he's a better looking guy and body than he was at 19 which i i don't think happens you know very what, many uh, of us you know what the payment for his deal was no he had to be in the following have you ever watched um, an episode of the yeah. following uh no no it's staggeringly 
uh, not for you. Staggeringly not for me. Okay, so let's talk about Friday the 13th. Well, first of all, right off the bat, we get into this movie. The first five minutes, we've got fornication mm-hmm. and we've got people getting killed because they're fornicating, which is what most of these uh, slashers yeah, are about. Yeah, the punishment, yeah. you know, once you get naked with a member of the opposite sex, uh, you I mean, are, I think that's only true if you're in the woods. No, you know, you're no, right. Not Halloween is different. Yeah. Halloween, um, you know, Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. These were, uh, and, and people have uh, waxed eloquently in this, these were a different version of the morality plays of the, the 50s and 60s, sure. which was if you're drinking, you're smoking, you're fornicating, you're going to get murdered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that <laughs> happens right off the bat. Yep. And then we flash forward to quote unquote present day, which is really in in 2017, we're talking about 1980. Yes. And it is 1980 in all its glory. It's it's everything the 80s were. It's fantastic. More. It's in every aspect. The actual script, the um, shoot itself, the DP, the direction, all that, all very sort of transitional between. Now we have uh, things like Monster's Ball, which are right up close and personal, two inches from your face. Oh. That wasn't a thing that happened a ton back in the late 70s, early 80s, especially not like the decade of influence in the United States. They call the 1970s the decade of influence. It changed the personal nature of the stories, uh-huh. but it took a little while longer. And, you know, I don't know that Friday the 13th is a, is a uh, you know, a benchmark movie for this, but it took a while longer for it to transition, not just the stories being up close and personal, but the cameras being up close and personal. You don't get a ton of that. You get no. a little of it when Kevin Bacon is in bed for with his girl. And some of the, like some of the kill shots are, are up close and personal, but they're but. not super close. They're still two, three feet away and they're still outside the, um, this, the spaghetti arms of personal space. I'll say the, mm-hmm. um, the first shot that we see of a death or of the killer is from behind the killer's back looking across over the shoulder at the girl who dies. Mm-hmm. And that's still two or three feet, away, four feet away from her. So it's interesting. But, um, oh, my goodness, very 80s. The very dialogue 80s. is very, very 80s. 80s, all that. And and I crazy love this. You pointed this out. I never thought of this month once. Nothing to do with Friday the 13th. It has nothing in the world, nothing what at all to do. What a great point. Like nothing to do. And as far as I can remember, which is very, very badly, I don't remember these very well at all. Uh-huh. I don't think any of them do. The original title for the screenplay was Long Night at Camp Blood. But mm. the, uh, the director, there's some great stuff in the. We have a list of 17 things you might not know about Friday the 13th. Uh, there's some great stuff in there, which we'll get to. Also- Scott. Yes. Why wouldn't that list be 13 things you don't know? I don't know. WTF. Because it's 13 plus four. They need a better writer. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. So uh, a couple of things we pointed out while we were watching this, we'll get to in that list, which you will find very fascinating. But hey, this was the heyday of hitchhiking. This was when it was, you know, late 70s, early 80s, perfectly normal to just be a young bon vivant out on the road. Catching rides from total strangers, mm-hmm. you know? And if you happen to be like the one girl we see in this who's 18, rocking a little 18-year-old bot, all like, oh, yeah, can I get a ride from you, sir? That does not end well for her. No, but here is the thing I don't understand at all. This movie comes out two years after Ted Bundy is in custody for picking up hitchhikers and murdering them. Mm. It is sensational and huge. If that sort of thing happened today, if we wanted 
to make a movie where there was a very similar thing to the BTK killer or mm -hmm. that guy in, was it Cincinnati, who had the dungeons in his basement and had, a you know, this real life, very significant, problematic and also sensational news story. I'm not sure that that it would go as well as it went in 1980, which is two years after well, Ted Bundy was, gets caught. Yeah. Now, and nobody now, cares. Now you would be you'd be incurring massive outrage at sensationalizing a tragic event. Uh, you know, yeah, well, and not necessarily, des depending on how they do it, not necessarily undeservedly, but I wonder if it is our access to information. Maybe. There, there's, it, we, we do not know. And for those of you kids at home who don't follow serial killers, the BTK was the bind, torture, kill BTK mm -hmm. serial killer. He was not a, not a nice man. My favorite part of the movie, of course is Ralph the Town Crazy. Right. Ralph the Town Crazy. Now, if you guys have seen Cabin in the Woods, you will recognize so many of the tropes from Cabin in the Woods were endemic in all of the slasher films, but particularly the Town Crazy. If you go out to Camp Blood, you're going to die. You're doomed. You're yeah. doomed. And uh, he was great. Do you know what? They should have listened to Ralph the Town Crazy. Well, and going back to your morality play idea, he's the voice of God, right? He's the one who everybody is ignoring because they don't want to believe him, but mm -hmm. he's the truth, the light, the way. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. So but he really is. That's deep. I mean, he's also bug nuts. Bug nuts zany, crazy. Right? Bug nuts crazy. And if you have not seen Cabin in the Woods, go see freaking or go rent that. It's a genius, genius movie. If you grew, if you watch grew up watching eighties movies. And you are a fan of the Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know all of those movies. You're going to love that movie a ton. So, because we kind of talk about the whole picture here, I said picture. Mm -hmm. There you um, go. Can you can we back up? I, you always bring a little box office budget kind of info, which is interesting to look at. Do sure. You, do you want to give me a little bit about yes, that? Yes, I can. So we have to adjust this for inflation to give people a perspective. But this was a very small budget by today's standards it might even be considered a micro budget movie they went I, out to it's very very i'm sorry to interrupt you but it, it's very short very very narrowly above a micro budget but which narrowly i think has above. to be okay. five hundred thousand dollars all inclusive or less and that's this, today so yeah. this cost five hundred fifty thousand dollars to make back in 1980 which adjusted for inflation is 1.5 million mm -hmm. so it's very it's it's, Absolutely small budget. It's a yeah. small budget. Here's where things get crazy. Talk about hitting one out of the park. The worldwide box office was $59,754,600, which in today's dollars is $175 million. <laughs> Now, amazing. man, unless I don't know the math, and oftentimes I do not, this movie earned 100 times what it cost to make. I mean, which is unheard of, especially since it's, I, this might be sacrilege, but it is a morality play. It's so cheesy. It's a bad movie. It's a bad... I mean, <laughs> It's just a bad movie. It's, it's cheesy. It just is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's remarkable. So if it was a bad movie, what was it about this movie? In this case, it wasn't the first one because Halloween was first. Mm -hmm. And there's actually... Some people say Psycho was the first slasher. And there's well, as many as 20 or 30 movies before this could arguably, arguably be called the first slasher movie. So it didn't invent the genre. What was it about this movie that made it catch on? It may have been that it was proof of concept for Halloween. I personally am going to say that uh, Psycho, while I agree, is a slasher movie, obviously, that mm -hmm. great Janet Lee scene, it's obviously a slasher movie, is a psychological thriller, yes. very at home in its uber with uh, Hitch other Hitchcock movies. Okay. It fits and belongs there. 
And uh, so I'm going to say that isn't what we see with Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and the Jason franchise and all that. What I think it is is proof of concept that that is a viable genre. I think you get Halloween and then... 1978. And then, and everybody's like, I mean, that was crazy. Yeah. But is that a one-off movie? There, There are a million luminous movies that are one movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest is a great example mm-hmm. it's deep it's complex it's vi- on its surface it's quite violent um and quite um heartstring pulling kind of and yet that doesn't spark a whole genre for good reason but this is fast and cheap in a way it is not terribly expensive even in 1980 to make because it's got a crazy big cast mm-hmm. it technically has sort of one set but it is quite a big set and it's it, it's proof of concept that that halloween thing can work and then people are like oh it's the same idea you know 40 years ago that well, saw the, embraced 20 years ago the idea was this was a one location shoot they found a place they could they could rent a summer camp before the summer camp went. And that summer camp's still active, by the way. And they were able to shoot the film on a shoestring budget and get cast in to do the movie, which became a rep- replicable event. There were tons of slasher films, many that were far worse than Friday the 13th that didn't do very well, right? But still, still, what is it about Friday the 13th? It made 100 times the budget. Can you... What, I'll give you, you get one guess, then I'll get one guess. What was it about Friday the 13th that made it a, a giant global phenomenon? I, like I said, I think that it, it was a brighter, simpler story than Halloween. Halloween, and I mean physically, visually bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, Halloween takes place Halloween night for the most part. So a lot of the scariness is, a lot of the scaredness, the people who are scared, mm-hmm. are it's harder to see because there's that, the blood and gore that's on the camera is 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 not as easy to see. In this one, you're, you're looking right, several times you are looking right at one of those play, main players as they die. In, in Kevin Bacon's case, it's epic because Kevin Bacon is so close to discovering that something is wrong at Camp Crystal Lake because he's laying on a bunk bed mm-hmm. and a drop of blood from the dead body that's in the top bunk and he's laying on the bottom bunk hits him in the forehead. And you see it coming and you think as he wipes off his finger, he wipes off his forehead with his finger and looks at his finger, you think, oh, now it's on. Mm-hmm. And right when that happens, he doesn't have time to react at all they before get him. They, get they, him. they stab an arrow right through his Adam's yep. apple and he dies. And we have a great story about that scene coming up at the end. I think what I think it was the lighthearted. It was a combination of campy, no pun intended, campy comedy and pretty young people who were not rich, not powerful. They were very much every man, every woman. And there was an enormous amount of comic relief in this. Part of what made these killings so tragic, or not tragic, but gripping was these were characters that were embracing the vibrancy of youth. They were happy. Mm -hmm. They were hardworking. They loved each other. They were playing. They were having a good time. They weren't rich. They weren't, didn't have anything special going on for them in the world. They're just like, these are kids. This is a summer job. They're just doing the best they can. They're having fun. They're partying as much as they can and giggling and getting along. And then they get slaughtered. And the kill scenes are totally cheesy, but that's what I think it was. It was the light. Like you say, this is a much brighter version of Halloween. Halloween is dark, dark, dark all the way through. This was, let's see, this, let's celebrate the wonders of youth and the wonders of life, and then let's snuff it all out and have people scream a whole bunch. Yeah. So there we got Ralph the Crazy, and then we're going to, you know, just jump around this movie. 
it starts to get, <laughs> this is where the plot is a little bit uh, fast and loose. At some point, nobody gives a shit that Nettie is caught out in a storm for like eight hours. He's just I mean, gone. And no one even recognizes that he's gone. True. Nobody recognizes he's gone. They're playing, they play strip monopoly. Oh my God. What? Yep. How 80s is that? Yeah. While, while getting high. Yes. But there, there are uh, hints that happen along the way where Nettie, who's Ned, he's the first guy to die, um, is an asshole. Mm-hmm. And they talk about it. Several of the main players talk about how he's a jerk. Why is Nettie such a jerk when they're on the dock and whatever? Yep. And when he has to be rescued because he's faking so he can smooch the girl. Yep. He, so he jumps in the lake and pretends to drown so she'll give him mouth to mouth. He's a jerk. So at first you're like, oh, my God, thank God that guy is gone. But I agree with you. After hours, somebody should be like, <laughs> I mean, there's no, it's, they, they say several times it's 10 miles to the nearest road. And once you get on that road, it's it is 10 miles, miles yeah. uh, into town. One thing I found very important, and I will attribute this to director Sean S. Cunningham and possibly Victor Miller, who, uh, who wrote the screenplay, is uh, I would like to point out that once the shit hits the fan, the only character to take a nap is the one who survives till the end. It's an important thing. And I'm a firm believer in the power of naps. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And from it, like we said, from a traditional movie-making perspective, there's really not that much to cover, which is funny. Since we did a whole episode on it, it's a bad movie. There's no backstory of any kind for these characters. They just appear out of sort of thin air. There's really no character motivation of any kind other than Nettie trying to get, you know, a little smooch and people trying to get laid. Like, that's... That's it. Yeah, there's, there's no, nothing. And there's so much potential that you, that today, if they'd made it today, you would see little bits and pieces. And in fact, you do see in Cabin in the Woods, little motivating, this is why they go alone in the Winnebago. It's just these kids in the Winnebago and they hardly know each other in mm. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Um, for example, Steve, who owns and is reopening Camp Crystal Lake, and that ostensibly is why those kids are there. They have two weeks before summer begins. Um, to get the the um, Camp Crystal Lake ready for school kids. Mm-hmm. Camp Crystal Lake, if I understand it correctly, between 1957 or 8, when the first incident happens, and 1980, which is present day, has been left fallow. Mm-hmm. So they're like knocking pillows together to get the dust out. That shit would have been decrepit <laughs> and just crumbled to dust. But that doesn't really matter. But Steve, we have no idea why he's opening Camp Crystal Lake, how he's opening Camp Crystal Lake, what, why, why he's so desperate. Like, we only have two weeks. Just make it work, which he says several times. Like, we've mm-hmm. got to do this. Get to work right away. Yep. No idea why. Because it seems like two, they're not, he go, goes out to get food and supplies, but he's not getting... Uh, linens and new mattresses. He's not doing any of that. Who the F is going to come to... And here's my favorite part of that. They're literally pounding these decrepit pillows and stuff to get dust out, and then they go to the lakeside, and there is a gigantic, and I do mean gigantic, floating dock mm-hmm. that is brand new and pristine white. Well, they're painting that sucker. That's When they open up, they're they're painting that. So... Uh, I would like to point out, now this is one thing I actually had to rewind a few times to look at, and you may not agree with me on this, and I think you'll disagree, but one of the standards in movie making is when you're fighting the bad guy, you're the you're a dude or a chick fighting the bad guy, nut shot. 
You hit him with a nut shot, hit the bad guy with a nut shot, it puts him down, <laughs> and you run away. Yeah. At one minute, at one hour and 21 minutes, I am convinced there was a punch to the pussy and it put the bad, <laughs> it put the killer down. And I'd rewind it a couple uh, times like, wait a minute. First, a little bit of spoiler. We should actually, since we've spoiler lit it already, yes. we should say the general concept of the entire series is that Jason Voorhees Jason, Jason, Jason. Kill, kill, kill. is the killer. But in Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees is not necessarily no. the killer. The killer is Mrs. Pamela Voorhees, his mother, yep. who ostensibly goes crazy when her son dies at Camp Crystal Lake in that initial scene. He drowns and her... In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. In her crazy mind, in her, she is lost because she's so bereft for her son. She has lost the ability to rationalize. And in her mind, if the camp counselors weren't off boinking, they were boinking they, when her son died. Yeah, they would have saved Jason. So, as a tribute to him, I guess she kills all the promiscuous, sexy, boinking teenagers punish who morality, are morality, morality, yeah. punish them. But. So she actually comes to Camp Crystal Lake, like uh, shows up kind of at the end when we see the final girl, who is the one who survives. Mm -hmm. Um, She shows up and she's like, oh, honey, 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 what can I do? And Alice is, of course, out of her mind. She's local. All these people are dead. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And then, bizarrely, Mrs. Voorhees is gigantic teeth, by the way, <laughs> and a crazy cable knit blue sweater in yeah. June. Everybody else is mostly naked. She's got 95 layers on. Yeah. Well, she's and, doing, she's doing roids. She's doing a roid cycle to we'll lift those bodies up all over the place. Yeah, I guess she must. Yeah. yeah. And she, um, she is like, no, I, I mean, she's almost the wicked wish of the West. She's like, no, darling, you need to die. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, ma'am. And then the last 20 minutes is a glorious mano a mano battle. Um, but of course we, I was coming up with some rules as we watched this and during the 20 minute battle at the end, Alice at no point decides that she's just going to get on the road and get the hell out of there. Do you have the rules that we wrote down? Can we go over I these? Do. I've been waiting for you to ask. So you mentioned the Buzzfeed article, but to be fair, we watched this together over lunch a few days ago mm-hmm. and Normally, I think I mentioned this earlier, you write notes in, I think, Evernote or something, but I just text myself random thoughts. Okay. 
and sometimes they don't make a ton of sense. But this time, every time you stopped and were like, okay, one, <laughs> I would write that down as a Scott's rules of slasher flicks. And number one was we never fucking separate. If yeah. we're ever in a situation, yes, which I can't imagine that situation. Just in case A and I ever wind up going to a summer camp together or any situation which we look around and go, this is a lot like a horror movie. Rule number one, anybody in my group stays in my yeah, group. Yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely, you were, we were talking to each other, but you made it very clear. Anybody in your group no. never fucking separates. Nobody separates. We stick together. That's rule number one. So guys, write that down. Rule number one is, Never separate. What we was never that? fucking separate. What yeah. was rule number two? <laughs> they get crazier and crazier, <laughs> everyone listening at home. Number two is, hey, if you ever see me hanging on the back of a door with an arrow sticking out of my eye, you head straight, you head straight out of town and you never fucking come back. <laughs> this is a valid rule, people. If someone in your group winds up with an arrow sticking out of their eye or is dismembered in any way, you need to go Away, because it's 360 degrees, just pick a direction and start walking. The odds of the killer being waiting for you in that direction, it's uh, it's 360 to 1. Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, sure. I mean, there's a, okay, there's a small arc. <laughs> yeah. It's about 300 to 1 that he's yeah. not going to be waiting for you. So just get the hell out of there. Yeah. Don't hang around the camp and look for a place to hide. Just leave. Just leave. Number three, if you hit a serial killer with a fire poker and the serial killer falls down, Kill the serial killer. This is important, and I feel like I may have shouted this in other other iterations as the movie went on. If you are faced with an assailant who is coming after you and has already been demonstrated to kill people and wants to kill you, and they're laying on the ground, kill them. This is a simple solution. Mm. Kill them. Bash them in the head until their brains come out and just kill them. Don't cry and then run away so they can get up and come after you. Because why? What happens? What's the next rule? (laughs) If you knock the serial killer down a second time and hit her in the head with a giant ball of twine, use the fucking twine to tie her up. This is another valid option. You've already thrown a giant eight pound ball of twine at her head. Use that to tie the killer up. Then you don't have to kill the killer or you can tie her up and then kill her. But don't run away because when you run away, what happens? Uh, Number five, if you hit the serial killer in the face the third time, this time with a frying pan... Please kill the serial killer. With a frying pan, with a cast iron frying pan, you lay out the serial killer. All right, now you've already given the serial killer two shots. I knocked you down, you got up. I knocked you down, you with got up. With a ball up. of twine. With a ball of twine. You keep coming at me. This is, this is the third time. Three strikes and you're out, serial killer. Use the cast iron frying pan to bash that head until the brains come out. I think, though, on your fifth rule, you got yeah. super polite. You stopped saying fucking and you started <laughs> saying please. So I think maybe that worked because Alice well, made it out alive. I was Spoiler trying to alive. rationalize with Alice and appeal to her higher nature or, more, or lower nature, whichever you want. Were there any more rules or is that the last rule? No, but let's go back to the... the um, There's a scene between Alice and the serial killer where she has, I don't know, some kind of fire poker or something. Yep. And she essentially, oh, no, no, she she hits her. She punches her. Yep. But for me, being an actual girl... I feel like she punches her sort of low in the gut. Oh, that's where they're fighting with the ball of twine. You thought it was a low gut punch. And you're like, nope. It's essentially getting shot in the nuts. It's It's the equivalent of a nut shot. It was a punch to the pussy, and she went down. She went she down. She did go down, but I don't think that would send her down, down in the same Voorhees. way it would down go Down goes you. Voorhees. Yeah. I think you would hit the ground a lot faster than Pamela <laughs> Voorhees would. <laughs> All right. All right. So that, that and, and of course, 
It's glorious. What else, ma'am, do we need to cover about this movie before Um, we get into this wonderful little list of snippets? I mean, I think that that's probably it. I'll say that this is this launched a franchise. There are one zillion sequels um, Mm -hmm. and there is even a relatively recent reboot. Um, But one thing that's interesting about this, we're, we're also as regular listeners to Story Smack will know we are going through the Resident Evil series because Resident Evil coming out in a couple of weeks, the next one. Yep. Um, they all have a similar storyline. They all have a similar plotline. They all have similar heroes mm-hmm. uh, or the same hero in Mila Jojovich. Um Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. Of no. The, the Friday the 13th movies, they don't feature the original killer. And this is, uh, that's what makes this franchise unique. Mm-hmm. In Nightmare on Elm Street, it's always Freddy. Mm-hmm. In Halloween, it's always Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. In Chucky, it's always Chucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in all of the slashers. Well, I mean, it could be Bride of Chucky. Well, there's Bride of Chucky, but Chucky was still there. Yeah, that was the family. Agreed. That, that was the family of tiny possessed dolls that slays together, stays together. Mm-hmm. This is the weird one. This is the one that stands out because at the end of the movie, which makes no sense whatsoever, Pamela Voorhees gets her head cut off, mm-hmm. and then the girl is crazy. Alice is floating in the middle of the lake. And Jason, who apparently has been underwater for 27 years. I thought you said 37 before. Uh, no, he's 37. He, I'm assuming he's 10 years oh, old. Oh, sure, sure. So he's, he's 27, yeah. And first of all, he's he grows to be a giant mountain of a man. Right? In, in the sequels. In maybe. the sequels, yeah. right? So he has somehow existed in the water for mm-hmm. 27 years. Mm-hmm. He's 37 years old with the body of a 14-year-old boy. And he has some kind of facial rot or mutation or whatever. And they yeah, do, it looks sort of like he was burned. They do get into that in some of the sequels. But when the first thing, when he first pops out, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, and and it, it was a huge moment in the movie. People were blown away by that. Yeah, it doesn't make in the confines of the first movie, which is, of course, at the time, all they have to go on. Mm. It makes absolutely no sense. You can, based on the fact that you just heard Pamela Voorhees talk about it, literally... 10 minutes before right you know her son drowned in the lake so you can make the connection that that is somehow her son jason what you find out in later movies is that camp crystal lake and crystal lake itself are magical and cursed magical some some sort of magic and curse and there's certainly a curse in crystal lake so even at some point the idea, and I don't know how well it executes because we're not watching all the Friday 13th movies together. Sorry, I'm not doing that again. No, I'm not I doing paid that. my dues as a teenager. Yep. But I, there is some idea that even the killers, even Jason himself, would like to get out of this, would like to stop doing this. But it's a some sort of cursed cycle where his mother is is sort of paying dues for his, or is crazy, and she does all of that killing because she's crazy from grief and then he is paying a debt to for her having killed all those innocent kids by killing more innocent kids kind of yes yes. okay yeah it's a blood for blood kind of thing it doesn't make any sense it makes absolutely no sense in the original and that's the last thing we'll say about that's one of those another point about the screenplay that's weird is it in one drop one throwaway line they mentioned a kid drowned in 57 and people got murdered in 58 uh and that's the only foreshadowing. Even when Pamela Voorhees shows up, we don't know who she is until she introduces herself. So the basic elements of script writing and storytelling with structure and foreshadowing, none of that exists in this. And in some ways, it's just a really bad screenplay. But like, like a lot of things, it just caught fire. And whatever it was, it made 100 times the budget. 
Let's go with a few bloody facts about Friday the 13th, ma'am. Number one, the original inspiration was Halloween. In 78, producer and director Sean Cunningham was looking for a model on which to build a commercially successful film, and he found one in John, Cooper, John Carpenter's horror classic Halloween. The two films ultimately don't share much other than very broad, broad slasher tropes, but Cunningham says he was, quote, very, very influenced by the structure of Carpenter's film. So hmm. that's, that's a very interesting thing there. As we go through this list, what you're going to realize is what a crazy seat-of-the-pants run-and-gun operation this was. They, it's staggering. They, were, they didn't know what they were, how they're going to finish it even halfway through the movie. <laughs> the film was being advertised before it even had financing. Hoping to drum up publicity for the project, Cunningham took out an ad in the July 4th, 1979 edition of Variety featuring the film's now iconic logo bursting through glass. At the time, the general structure of the film was in place, but Georgetown Productions had not yet fully agreed to finance it, and the advertised November 1979 release date was a pipe dream. Still, Cunningham did get a response from the ad. Everybody wanted this film, he said. And if you have seen, ma'am, have you seen Dust Till Dawn? Oh, yes. The gentleman with the, uh, the cock and balls gun. Mm-hmm. I believe that is Tom Savini. Mm-hmm. Tom Savini is a legend in the special effects world. One of Tom's earliest movies, of course, was Friday the 13th. That's what made him. You will love this. So it's a camp. It's a summer camp. There's beds, cabins, a kitchen. Tom Savini is now a makeup effects legend, thanks in part to his work on Friday the 13th. And in the making of the film, he and his assistant, Tasso Savarisk, actually ended up using the camp to finalize the special, special makeup effects. According to Savini, many of the latex appliances ultimately used to create the film's gruesome murders were baked in the pizza ovens at the camp where the movie was filmed. That's awesome. Isn't that great? Because awesome. they were yeah. kind of middle of nowhere and they were on a shoestring budget. Like, we'll just make it here. I wonder if that, you said you can still visit Camp, what, it, what was the set for Camp Crystal you can. Lake? Can you stay there? I think you can. Camp Crystal Lake is actually Camp Nobibusku. A fully operational camp that the cast and crew were granted access to after the campers left in the summer of 1979. It is still in use today. Awesome. So if you were a parent that really didn't like your kid very much, that's where you would send them. So when they came home, you'd be like, guess what happened there? <laughs> Let's watch a movie with daddy. It'll be great. Well, you know, though, I wonder how how different or, or you know, how disparate those two experiences are. Because I have a we have a friend who just recently went to... The Stanley Hotel, which is where they shot The Shining. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and uh, she was like, "Yeah, it was not scary. <laughs> like it was not at all what you'd expect, and not scary, and not. But it wasn't. It was cool, super cool, it's super cool, but it wasn't scary. Yeah. So, uh, Shelley Winters was the first choice for Mrs. Voorhees. Wow. Uh, she Cunningham and company went in search of an actress with a recognizable name but whose career was nevertheless on the decline so she could be paid relatively little for the part. When so, did the Poseidon Adventure come out, though? So right I around then, it made Shelley, brought Shelley back. an Oscar, yeah. Oh, yeah, so they couldn't have got her then. And it would be kind of late 70s-ish, I wonder. He uh, Winners wasn't interested, and fellow candidate and Oscar winner Estelle Parsons actually negotiated to be in the film. She ultimately backed out. Uh, Cunningham also considered Louise Lasser, who I don't know, and Dorothy Malone, who I'm not familiar with, right up until filming began. But ultimately, production wound up with Betsy Palmer in the role. So Betsy Palmer was Pamela Voorhees, and here's why she took the role. When he finally got around to offering Palmer the part of Mrs. Voorhees, she suddenly found herself in need of cash. After more than a year on Broadway, her car broke down as she drove back to her home in Connecticut. She might never have taken the movie if she hadn't needed the money to buy a new car. 
Amazing. That's amazing. She says, I got home at five in the morning and it was a situation where I desperately needed a new car. Palmer said, if I hadn't needed a new car, I don't think I would have done Friday the 13th. I love that. I just looked it up. The Poseidon Adventure was 1972. So it's interesting to me because I can't believe that Shelley, although, I mean, she was a middle-aged actress in the Poseidon Adventure. So maybe her, you know, it wasn't so much her star had waned, but the opportunities were small. Maybe. Yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And this six years makes a huge difference. No, eight years. In the world of movies, eight years is, is night and day. You can go from being a rock star to being forgotten. So Well, and especially at, at the, the age yeah, of Pamela Voorhees. Sure. This one you'll love because we were, we noticed that the killer, when we, you only see the killer's hands mm-hmm. and the killer had a ring. Remember how the killer had a ring? College, we kept rewinding, yeah, looking uh-huh. for the, looking for the class ring. This is awesome. And I pointed out that I'm like, okay, I don't, I'm confused because I know the killer is Pamela Voorhees, but it's been so long since I've seen this movie. That's a man's hands, baby. That's our man's hands. Even as filming got underway, Cunningham was still looking for an actress to play Mrs. Voorhees. So many of the early murder scenes were actually shot without Betsy Palmer. That's awesome. With members of the crew standing in for the hands of the murderer. Yep. For example, when Annie's throat is cut early in the film, special effects assistant Tasso Tavares is the one wielding the knife. Interesting. I wonder if they end up with a movie credit for that. We'll have to I don't. I, we could go back and look at that. And I'll just bring up, there's just two more, I think, that are interesting. One's a little long. And of course, the last one will be about the music, which is all that really matters. Okay. Kevin Bacon's iconic death took hours to film and almost didn't work. So it's very small budget, mm-hmm. right? So Tom Savini and they had to have Tom Savini, his assistant, that t- Tasso guy, and another person under the bed where Kevin Bacon gets killed. Kevin Bacon's also under the bed too. It's just his head sticking out. And they had set up the whole prosthetic of his throat uh-huh. with a pump that was supposed to pump out blood. So uh-huh. when they push the arrow through the throat, blood goes all over. So it's this incredibly complex situation where it's just a just regular old bunk bed and they've got four guys crammed in four underneath it. Four adult men. Four adult yeah. men crammed in underneath it. And then right when they, and if they had screwed it up, they would have to go make a whole new prosthetic. They only had one. Mm-hmm. So when they're shooting it, the hoses came loose from the pump. Uh-huh. And they were, while this happened, that guy who was the hands of the uh-huh, killer, uh-huh. House, he just grabbed the hose and, and started blew into, blew it? into it. Nice. And Kevin Bacon that. was able to just roll like he had, he was, he was acting and he just rolled with it. So this winds up becoming kind of the, the, the iconic scene in the movie. And yeah. it was just a shit show. It was a total shit show that yeah, they just figured out as they happen. went. We've seen that happen. We had the storyboards and, and huge discussions. We had a great FX guy for the Ancestor trailer. Right. And it was gorgeous. And when we when we first met him, finally met him face to face, he was like, yeah, I'm really excited. Here's the blood for this. Here's the blood for this. Different bloods because they flow differently. And we're going up to the mountains where it's snowing. And he has to do like two or three buckets of blood right, because right. they do something different. And here's the... The leg for when, for when the, you know, somebody breaks their leg and is missing or gets bitten off by an ancestor, whatever it is, and didn't hike into the woods with the prosthetic. Yeah, he left leg. <laughs> and so we, we improvised. We were like, we okay, drove, let's dig a big hole. We drove five hours up into the mountains to shoot this thing. If you guys want to see it, that is at scottsigler.com slash ancestor. There's a tra- it's a trailer for my novel, Ancestor. He forgot the prosthetic leg that he'd worked for weeks on. And, and was so excited about it. We had one day to shoot, so we just had to we had And to wing he was it. so funny. He was like, no, no, that's for tomorrow's shoot. And we're like, no, there's one day. What are you talking about? We hiked into the woods. What are you doing? We were on a shoestring budget, bro. And then uh, this is the thing we'll close up with, and I think this is wonderful. The main theme music came from a line of dialogue. So, kill, 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 mom. 
that of that is as iconic as the hockey mask itself. A lot of the advertising for it also not in the first not one. in the first yeah. one, but a lot of the advertising for the Friday Thirteenth movies as the series progresses is nothing but that, like one like a hatchet and then that sound. Mm-hmm. When composing the score for the film, composer Harry Manfredi was looking for a distinctive sound to identify any point when the killer appeared in a scene. When he saw a first print of the film, he heard Mrs. Voorhees imitating Jason saying, Killer mommy, killer mommy, and decided that was the key. So he took two syllables from that line of dialogue, spoke them himself to make the iconic sound. Quote, so I got the idea of taking the key from kill and the ma from mommy, but spoke them very harshly, distinctly and rhythmically into a microphone and ran them through the 70s echo thing. It came out as you hear it today. So every time there was the perspective of the stalker, I put that into the score, Manfredi mm-hmm. said. And what's awesome about that, we even mentioned that uh, during the viewing, is you don't... It, slasher movies evolved a little bit where the, the element of surprise was as important, if not more important, than the gore and the blood and the whatever. Uh-huh. And in this one, you see it. you see the gory part coming a mile away because you hear that... And you're like, what is she? She's brushing her teeth. Everything's fine. There's nothing going wrong. What's going on? And then, yeah. And and you know at that point to look in the background and see if you can see the killer like behind a curtain or something. And most of the time you can. Right. Uh, but that changes after, almost after this movie, that changes because you got up the stakes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing. So that is our show for this show, week. Show. If you have questions for Scott or for me, or if you have a topic you would like to see us discuss on a future episode of Story Snack, please email me at info at empty set dot com. That is I N F O at empty set dot com. You can find us both online if you still want to follow Scott, because I think he's getting scarier by the second, guys. He is at Scott Ziegler on Twitter and Instagram, and his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. I am a real girl on Twitter and a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find us online at scottsigler.com slash storysmack, and we'd love to see your comments there. You can also find us on iTunes. Search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday and a big hit of Story Smack every Friday. Uh, real quick, I'm just going to add, this movie did give me a nightmare. I woke up screaming at two Amish girls who were walking around the foot of my bed the night the day that, I mean, the that night after the day we saw this. Has, the nightmare has nothing at all to do with the movie whatsoever. But I will say it did scare the hell out of me and I woke up screaming. So kill, 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 ma, ma, ma. So come back for the episode next week. And we will talk some more smack. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.